Thank you. Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's sermon is, When the Prodigal Son Came to Himself. When the Prodigal Son Came to Himself. Sunday morning we are working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we will find ourselves there before this sermon is over. But we're going to look at a few verses here in 1 Peter 4, because that's where we're going to begin the sermon. We're going to read verses 12 through 15. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this tremendous parable that we have been digging into over these weeks. And I'm not sure how many uh, we have left, but I've been thoroughly enjoying the truths that you've been um, showing me. Even though it's familiar, it's been a blessing each week to see new things that I've never seen before, Lord. I believe this past week you revealed something to me. I'd like to believe that, that you would have me reveal to your people about the prodigal son coming to himself uh, and what that means and the application that it can have for us. And so I pray, Lord, that what you've shown me, I can, I can faithfully show to your people. I pray especially for the time that we discuss um, suffering and understanding the differences between trials and discipline and what they would produce in our lives, that you would help us to take these truths with us and rightly divide suffering and see what it is you're trying to accomplish in our lives through the suffering we experience, whether it is trials or whether it's discipline. I thank you for this time, Lord. Pray that you can be pleased with it and ask that uh, you'd burden each of us to see this as a continued time of worship and did not conclude with our singing. And so help us to remove things from our minds that might distract us from your word and what you would say to us through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the parable of the prodigal son, very familiar to all of us. I can remember a time in college when we had to read about a a secular school that I went to, Florida Tech, and they were talking about that, and it seemed everyone in that class was familiar with it. And so I've been trying to dig out some of the wonderful truths that perhaps you haven't seen in this parable before. And this morning, I hope to give you greater insight into one verse. Don't turn there yet. But it's Luke 15, 17 that discusses the prodigal son coming to himself and what exactly that means. And so it's going to involve sharing some things at the beginning of the sermon, and at the end of the sermon we will connect the dots, and hopefully this will all be tied together nicely for us. So I want to begin by having you look in First Peter, because along with Job, this is probably the book that discusses suffering uh, the most, or at least second most to Job in all of Scripture. And one of the things you'll notice as you read through Peter is that while he, at least especially in First Peter, discusses suffering, he, dis- he divides our suffering into two types. And this is going to be very important. Our suffering can be viewed as belonging to one of two different categories. Now, one of those categories of suffering is trials. We experience trials, and this is suffering that we have nothing to do with and that we did not cause it. It is not a result of any of our actions or behavior. Trials uh, is simply a category of suffering that we experience from living in what? Yeah, a fallen world, right? A sin-stained world. Now, the other category of suffering is a result of sin we commit, and this is suffering that we did everything to cause. 
I want to give us a lesson just to drive this home, and that's our first lesson. We suffer because of trials we experience or sin we commit. We suffer because of trials we experience or sin we commit. And if this is foreign to you, I believe it'll become very uh, clear as we look at a few verses here in 1 Peter. I'm going to ask you each time as I read these verses if Peter is discussing suffering from trials or suffering from discipline. Let me say that one more time. We're going to read some, jump around 1 Peter, look at a handful of different verses, and each time I'm going to ask you if Peter is discussing suffering from trials or suffering from discipline. And so please make sure you're, you're paying attention, especially the kids. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, verse 19. We'll start at the the first instance of this discussion. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. First Peter 2, verse 19, Peter says, This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows or suffering while suffering unjustly. Now, is this suffering because of trials or because of sin? Trials, definitely because of trials. We did nothing to cause this suffering. Look at verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And just pause right there. Now is he talking about suffering because of trials or sin? Yeah, definitely because of sin. We sin, God disciplines us, and so in the verse when it says we sin and are beaten for it, it's talking about God's discipline, or you could understand that this is talking about God disciplining us for our sin. He's the one doing the beating, you might say. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So now is Peter talking about suffering because of trials or sin? This is because of trials. He actually says you're suffering from doing good, which would be the opposite of suffering from sinning. Look at the next chapter, verse 17, 1 Peter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. And then pause here. Is this suffering because of trials or sin? Trials, you're doing good, and you end up suffering as a result. Definitely not because of sin you committed. Look at the rest of the verse, than for doing evil. And that's the other category of suffering, which is the result of what? Of sin. Turn to 1 Peter 4. Look at verse 12, the verses for Scripture reading. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. And so he kind of gives it away right here, whether we're talking about sin at the beginning or trials. He says, we're talking about fiery trials which come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised as though something strange was happening to you. So he's encouraging us to expect trials in this life. And then rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So he tells us we can even rejoice, or like in the language of James 1, count it all joy when we experience trials because of the good that we know is being produced through those trials. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God or the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So he's clearly talking about suffering because of trials versus sin. He says the trials test us, that we should not be surprised by them. We can rejoice in them because of the good they're producing. And then let me ask you before I introduce the next lesson, what do we believe or are convinced by scripture 
Carl even read during the communion devotion, that trials produce in our lives. What do trials produce in our lives? Yeah, growth, long-suffering, patience, spiritual maturity, all of these wonderful things associated with our sanctification. And this brings us to lesson two, the first part. Lesson two, part one. Trials can produce maturity. Trials can produce maturity. Any guesses why I said trials can produce maturity versus trials do produce maturity or always produce maturity? Yeah, there's no guarantee that trials are going to produce maturity in our lives. It is an appropriate saying that trials can make you better or bitter, right? Trials are supposed to produce maturity. Just a few verses that you're probably familiar with. Romans 5 again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. We don't like trials, but Scripture is overwhelmingly clear that God uses them um, for incredible good in our lives, to sanctify us and conform us into the image and likeness of Christ. So when we're suffering, or let me back up, when we're going through trials, we can rejoice that God is doing something wonderful in our lives through them, which is a very encouraging thought considering how much all of us dislike trials. James 1-2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience or perseverance, and let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so just like Peter talked about rejoicing in trials, James talks about rejoicing in trials because of the good produced in our lives as a result. Just one example of an individual who became bitter instead of better through trials, and I chose this individual because he's actually one of the godliest kings in the Old Testament, and that is Asa. And so maybe you remember, very sadly, toward the end of his life, he had experienced some great victories over enemies that had attacked him, but he did end up turning toward the world for help instead of turning to God. He ends up being rebuked by this prophet, and very tragically, uh, this godly king is close to finishing poorly after beginning so well. And so in, I I guess I might say, a last-ditch effort, because it was the 39th year of his reign, he only reigned 41 years So he's within the last year or two of the end of his life. Listen to what happens. 2 Chronicles 16, 12, in the 39th year of Asa's reign, he became diseased in his feet. And his disease became severe. It was probably gout or gangrene. And then listen to this. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Absolutely nothing wrong was seeking help from physicians, but this is worded in such a way as to serve as a criticism of Asa that he only sought the physicians and would not seek God. And why do you think he didn't seek God? Because he was bitter. This trial had made him bitter. My suspicion is he'd served the Lord so faithfully, uh, almost four decades worth of, of reigning well. Perhaps he thought he didn't deserve this. He didn't recognize that it was really God's grace in his life. <laughs> this might shock you, but when I see God giving Asa gout or gangrene in his feet, I see it as a manifestation of God's grace because it is another attempt by God to reach out to Asa and turn Asa back toward God. It could have made him better, but instead it turned him the other direction. So that's why the lesson says trials can produce maturity versus always producing maturity. Now, hopefully you're still in 1 Peter 4, Look at verse 15, after talking about suffering because of trials, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer 
or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. And now Peter is talking about suffering because of what? And it, you almost sense a somewhat pastoral heart from Peter, right? You hear him appealing to you through his letter, or appealing to his readers saying, you're going to suffer on this side of heaven, but at least try your best to prevent it from being because of sin that you have committed. You will suffer, but let not it be because of sin that you're engaged in. So we can suffer because we murdered, stole, all these things he listed, did evil or meddled in other people's affairs. Here are some examples of discipline in Scripture. Here are some examples of individuals suffering, not trials, but because of sin they committed and experienced God's discipline as a result. Moses struck the rock, and what was the discipline for him? You will not go into the promised land. Numbers 20, verse 12. God said, because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband Uriah murdered. God, through the prophet Nathan, tells David, the sword shall never depart from your house. Second Samuel 12, verse 10. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. A little lesser known, Jehoshaphat, one of the best kings in the Old Testament, but had a propensity to engage in ungodly alliances, in particular with Ahab, one of the worst kings in the Old Testament. So Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom of Judah, begins this relationship with Ahab, the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel, builds these ships with him, and then listen to this. God tells Jehoshaphat through a prophet, Second Chronicles 20, verse 37, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works, and then that fleet of ships were wrecked. So I don't know how much money or time was invested in building this fleet, but it was God's discipline. Jehoshaphat suffered the loss of all of these ships. It would be wrong to look at those accounts and say that those men were experiencing what? It would be wrong to look and say that they were experiencing trials. They were, they were suffering, but they were experiencing suffering because of the sin they committed, and God disciplined them. Now, what can God's discipline look like in our lives? Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few examples. And, and what I want you to consider is God's hand doesn't reach down from heaven with a belt or a paddle, right? We don't see his hand come down and then spank us with it. And so the way that he, let's say, spanks us or disciplines us is through suffering that's accomplished in the circumstances in our lives, difficult ones. And so perhaps someone slacks off in their job for years. What could the discipline look like? Job loss, demotion, loss of pay. Finances are tight, perhaps because of years of impulsive purchases. If someone engages in years of gluttonous eating, the discipline could be diabetes. If people uh, ignore their parents' warnings, and I hope all the young people, I was just talking to someone just this past week, I was enjoying a uh, lunch with a young man, and he shared an observation with me that I thought was very insightful that I'd, li I'd like to pass along. I didn't ask him, so I'm not going to mention his name, but he said to me, you know, I've seen there's not an instance of an individual marrying against their parents' wishes where I did not see it be problematic for the individual. I'm just going to say that one more time for all the children here. This person said insightfully, I have not seen one person marry against their parents' wishes 
without suffering as a result. Now, I hope the kids are listening because that is a very sobering thought. And so one of the ways that God's discipline can be shown in the lives of children who dishonor their parents through marrying people without their parents' blessing could be suffering in the marriage itself, which this, this individual observed. So these are not trials. This is suffering caused by sin. Now, here's a very important question. We've been building up, up to this. As much as trials are supposed to produce maturity, God's discipline is not supposed to produce maturity. It is supposed to produce something. It is supposed to produce something else. And what's that? Repentance. As much as trials are supposed to produce maturity, God's discipline is supposed to produce repentance. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. Part one, trials can produce maturity. Part two, and discipline should produce repentance. God's discipline should produce repentance. Now, if we understand those two truths, the trials should produce maturity and discipline should produce repentance. And this is real important. Just give me your attention while I ask you this. Can you see why it would be incredibly problematic to confuse discipline and trials? Or can you see why it would be incredibly problematic to be disciplined by God but think you're in a trial or conversely be in a trial but think you're being disciplined. They're supposed to produce two different things in our lives. If people experience a trial, so this is something they didn't cause. They did nothing wrong to introduce this suffering into their lives. They're going through a trial, but they think it's discipline. Then they're going to blame themselves for the suffering that they're experiencing. They're going to wonder why God is upset with them when what? God is not upset with them. They're going to wonder what they did wrong when what? They didn't do anything wrong. They're going to wonder what they need to change or do differently when they don't need to change anything or do anything differently because they're not being disciplined. They have not sinned. God is not expecting them to repent. Instead, they're experiencing a trial that is just part of life on this side of heaven. And as a pastor, few things are worse than watching people suffer or experiencing a trial completely independent of anything that they've done, but then believe that they were the cause of it. It's almost doubly suffering because you're experiencing the suffering from the trial, but then you're also experiencing the suffering that comes with the regret and blaming yourself for it. But you can also see why it's unfortunate when people experience God's discipline but think it is a trial. Let me say that one more time. It is equally unfortunate or detrimental in a person's life to experience God's discipline but think it is a trial because that suffering then is not going to produce the desired outcome or the outcome that God desires for that person, which would be repentance. And so as tragic as it is when people experience a trial and wonder if it's their fault, equally tragic when people sin, God disciplines them, but they don't think it's their fault. And it's important to understand the difference between trials and discipline because we don't want to go through life suffering as a result of our sin without ever understanding that it is our fault and God wants to see repentance. So when people are being disciplined but they think that they're going through a trial, they'll say things like this. Why is this happening to me? 
why am I so unlucky? Why am I so unfortunate compared to other Christians? Why do these bad things keep happening to me that don't happen to other people? They might even say things like this, why doesn't God love me? When we know that God actually disciplines us for what reason? Because he does love us. So if we were talking to someone who loved us, and we're being disciplined by God, but we think we're going through a trial and we're saying, why, does this, why is this happening to me? If that friend genuinely cares about us, what is that friend going to say? Because you sinned. If someone cares enough about you, they're going to be able to look at you, and when you're talking about your suffering, they're going to be able to say, this is happening and it's your fault. You're the one who caused this by your choices and your behavior. This is not random or coincidental. You are not unlucky. You are the one who brought this discipline into your life by the sin that you have committed. And I would tell you, if you can find friends like that, surround yourself with them because they can be very few and far between people that love you enough to to potentially jeopardize their friendship with you, recognizing that if they say this to you, you might not want to have anything else to do with them, but they care enough about you to risk that friendship in telling you the truth. The premier place in Scripture, I mean, I just talk about God's discipline, and what is the premier place or passage in Scripture that comes to mind? Does someone say Hebrews 12? We'll try that again. What's the premier place? Okay, let's turn there. Let's turn to Hebrews 12. The reason it's the premier place, the word discipline occurs nine times. So just turn two, ver- two, cha- two books to the right, Hebrews, James, Peter. Is that right? Yeah, two, two books to the left, excuse me. Two books to, to the left in your Bibles to Hebrews, two books before Peter. We're going to read through these verses quickly because there's a point I want to make that relates to Luke 15. It's in verse 11, but we're going to start at verse 5 for context. The word discipline occurs nine times in verses 5 through 11. That is definitely the theme of this passage. So verse 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines, some of you already said this, which blessed me, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us because he loves us and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children that are not sons. Now, by a show of hands, who enjoys God's discipline? (laughs) That's right, yeah. Look look at uh, verse 11. For the moment, discipline seems painful. I mean, how true is that, right? I always appreciate the Bible's candidness. Uh, Interestingly, what does the Bible say about sin for a season? That it's what? It's pleasurable. The Bible is incredibly honest with us because it's written by God who, uh, according to Hebrews, it is impossible for him to lie. And so God is completely, uh, demonstrates incredible integrity through the pages of Scripture and telling us very plain things like discipline is painful for the moment. Now, because discipline, discipline is painful or because it is so unpleasant, I want to give you um, pretty quickly three encouraging truths to remember when you are disciplined by God. And the other reason that this is important to share is because there are certain things that only some of us experience. 
But based on verse 8, look at verse 8. What do we know about discipline? All have participated. All, if you are a Christian, you have been disciplined and you will be disciplined again by God. It is something all of us have experienced or all of us participate in. So all of us can keep these truths in mind. Lesson three, be encouraged when disciplined because it means we part one are God's child. Be encouraged when disciplined because it means we part one are God's child. We all want to be confident in our salvation. I hope we all examine ourselves as Scripture instructs and minister tests to us that I've talked about from behind this pulpit before, to, uh, not to make you necessarily doubt your salvation, but actually the opposite, encourage you to be confident in your salvation. And one test or examination you can give to yourself is whether you're disciplined by God when you sin. And one of the very encouraging things about being disciplined by God is it can give you confidence that you are, in fact, his child because he is a good father who disciplines his children. Now, when I see other children misbehaving, I don't discipline them. I don't bring them to a private room and then spank them or tell them they're not going to get dinner. And why is that? Because they're not my children. I don't concern myself with them. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making here, that God does not worry about children that are not his children, but are still children of the devil. But the children who are his, who are part of his kingdom, those are the ones that he's going to be disciplining and chastising. And when that happens, it can give us confidence that we are his child and he loves us. Look at verse 9. And, that, and the other thing is sometimes you see people who seem to, for lack of a better way to say it, get away with things. There's many, there are many individuals in Scripture who were upset that it seemed to them that people were getting away with things. We looked at one of them recently in Psalm 73. Asaph said he started to stumble in his relationship with the Lord because he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Habakkuk brings his, his accusation to the Lord that he can't understand why he would look on so much wickedness with it going unpunished. And so many people throughout history, believers, even some of the great people in Scripture like Habakkuk and Asaph, looked at the prosperity of the wicked and wondered why these people were able to get away with it. And there's two possibilities. They're either not God's children or he's giving them time to what? Repent. But that's it. Look at verse 9. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So although we disliked being disciplined while growing up, and I'm not talking spiritually here, I'm talking about we disliked being disciplined by our earthly fathers while growing up, it did cause us to do what with them? or even if you are a child at this time. When you're disciplined by your earthly father, it causes you to do what with that earthly father? Respect him, appreciate him. It should, at least. And if any of the, again, if any of the kids are listening, Scripture says that you should respect your father for disciplining you, appreciate him disciplining you. Now, conversely, children who are not disciplined, they might enjoy it for that moment, but they end up not respecting their father in the future when they when they basically when when do children become frustrated with their parents for not disciplining them i'll tell you do you want to know when when they get older and they suffer because of the sin they commit 
wishing that their parents had loved them enough to discipline it out of them when they were younger. Even if children appreciate not being disciplined when they're younger, they can become resentful later that their parents didn't love them enough to discipline that behavior out of them when they were younger. And so if you're disciplined by your parents as a child, it is something that you shouldn't just respect your parents for, but appreciate in them or appreciate them doing. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time, notice this, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So God disciplines us perfectly. This brings us to the next part of lesson three. Be encouraged when disciplined because it means part two, we are in God's hands. Be encouraged when disciplined because it means we are in God's hands. I've always been encouraged by, this is another place in scripture that's very honest. It says that as fathers, we're disciplining as seems best to us. As a father, can you relate to that? Aren't you looking at your child when they do something wrong and wondering the appropriate discipline and just striving to do your best, guessing how many spankings they should, or perhaps guessing should they be spanked? How many spankings? What is an appropriate punishment? So as as fathers, we're just doing our best. We're guessing what is best for our children. But with God, what can you know? It is what's best. You never have, he's not guessing. God isn't up there saying, well, you know, should, should Scott up here get three spankings for this? Oh, it is his 20th time doing this. He's probably should give him five spankings for this. I mean, God doesn't wonder. There's no, you know, the triune nature of God. All three persons don't have to gather around the throne and figure out what the best scenario is. God does exactly precisely what is best in our lives to bring about the the perfect result for us and that is incredibly encouraging to me that he disciplines us perfectly we can be confident in that discipline that it is as the verse says in verse 10 in the middle of it notice those words he disciplines us for our good for our good and you can almost bask in that truth when you're being disciplined as painful as it is you can just bask in the reality that what is happening to you is happening for your good and can then be thankful for it. You never, it, it, you might feel at times, and I'll be the first one to say this, that God is being too severe. I probably don't have to ask for a show of hands of people who have thought at times that God was being too severe with them, but he's not. He did not choose the wrong discipline. He knows exactly what we should receive, and that's what he administers to us consider a situation that took place with david do you remember he sinfully numbered the people i believe it was uh the prophet gad that came to him and in a very interesting situation does anyone remember what what god told gad to tell david you choose (laughs) god told gad the prophet to tell david you're going to be disciplined for numbering the people, but I'm going to let you choose the discipline that you want. And here it is. 2 Samuel 24, verse 12. Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Shall there be three years of famine come to you in our land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? And then David said, I am in great distress. And then listen to this. He's in great distress and he says, 
Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. And why do you think David said that? He knew God's discipline would be perfect, but he did not want to have man responsible for him and what man might do to him. And so when David was disciplined or when he's in great distress, he says, I want to be in God's hands when I've done wrong. And when we're in great distress and we have done wrong, that's where we should want to be too. We should want to be in God's hands knowing that he knows what's best for us. Look at our last verse. This is the verse we built up to. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This brings us to the last part of lesson three, be encouraged when disciplined because it means we part three can produce fruit. We part three can produce fruit. So God disciplines us, as we've been talking about, because he wants us to repent. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I talked about it uh, in the past. But genuine repentance should be followed by what? What did John the Baptist, and this is, why it's, this is why we fail to repent. I'll just be candid with you. We fail to repent because we get this wrong. <laughs> Genuine repentance is followed by fruit. We fail to repent because we think only of stopping without starting. We think only of putting off without putting on. But in the language, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 are incredible passages discussing the principle of severing and replacing. And anytime you're going to sever or stop, you must start something. There must be an accompanying behavior or fruit that is replaced to fill that vacuum. Because if that vacuum isn't filled, or let's say, let me tell you this, that house stays empty, then what happens? There's other spirits that are going to come back and fill it, and you're going to be in a worse situation than you were before. So when you hear the word repent, never think only of stopping. Think also of starting. And that's why John the Baptist, he yelled at the people that were coming out to be baptized by him, and what was his statement to them? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And you kind of look at that and say, bear, what is that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Bear fruit, is he telling them to stop something or start something? Both. <laughs> he says, bear fruit worthy of repentance because if their repentance is genuine, then it will be accompanied by fruit. Okay, so that's one of the other encouragements. And when we're disciplined by God and we repent, that it can lead to the production of greater fruit in our lives as a result. Notice the words, to those who have been trained by it, and the word it refers to God's discipline. So this is saying the fruit of righteousness is produced by people who have been trained by God's discipline. Now, the fact that the author of Hebrews says that there are people who have been trained by God's discipline implies what? That there are people who are not trained by God's discipline. Other places in Scripture support this. Proverbs 27, 22. You can crush a fool in a mortar. That is severe discipline, isn't it? Listen, you want to hear severe discipline? Crush someone in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain. That's incredible discipline. Yet his folly will not depart from him. I mean, that is someone that is very strongly disciplined but does not learn from it or is not trained by it. Here's an example in Scripture, Jeremiah 5.3. You, 
Jeremiah's lamenting, I believe, and he says, you struck the Jews down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They made their face harder than rock, referring to their stubbornness. They have refused to repent. So Jeremiah is saying that God has been pounding on the Jews, repeatedly spanking them. The discipline has been very severe, yet they did not learn from it, and that's why God finally brought in the Babylonians and hauled them off in those three waves into Babylon. And so people can be trained, or excuse me, people can be disciplined by God but not learn from it or not be trained by it. And I, my life is an example. I mentioned this, and I could give you examples from my life of times when I didn't learn from God's discipline like I should have. I look back on times I sinned, I felt God's discipline, and I was not trained by it like I should have. I did not repent, and I wish I would have because then I wouldn't have had to be disciplined by God for the same thing at some point in the future. I wish I would have learned earlier and avoided that unnecessary suffering. With all that in mind, turn to Luke 15. We've been looking at these verses for weeks. We are familiar with them. The prodigal, so I'm going to read through this pretty quickly. We'll start at verse 12 for context. The prodigal son is being disciplined by God. Luke 15, verse 12, The younger of the sons said to his father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, and this is not remotely coincidental, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Don't ever read this and think this is coincidental. There are no coincidences in the Christian life. He spent everything he had, and who is in charge of famines? God is. He introduces this famine. Again, God's hand doesn't come out of heaven with a belt, but it can bring a famine. Do you remember in David's day? David suffered a famine, and he kind of recognized someone did something wrong to bring this famine into the land. Does anyone remember who did something wrong? Saul did. David goes to God about it, and he says, why is this happening? What sin has been committed that you would bring a famine into the land? And then God says, it's because of Saul, because he slaughtered some number of the Gibeonites who'd been a covenant people with the Israelites, and the land is suffering as a result of that. Now, he works through circumstances. God does the cause suffering, and in the prodigal son's case, he uses this famine. And then verse 15, it says, the son goes and hires himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So things get so bad, he becomes a slave, he begins to starve, and all that was the foundation <laughs> for this question. Did the son learn? Was he trained by the suffering he experienced, or was he a fool? He was trained by it. Look at verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And so when you read the words of Hebrews 12, 11, and it talks about people being trained 
by God's discipline to produce fruit in their lives, you will not find many better examples than what you're looking at with this son because he did not have to turn back to his father. He could have continued in his foolishness. That phrase, when he came to himself, is one of the best descriptions in Scripture of what it means to be trained by God's discipline. It means coming to yourself, coming to your senses. And this brings us to lesson three. Coming to our senses is part of being trained by God's discipline. Coming to our senses is part of being trained by God's discipline. So you probably remember that Luke 15 contains three parables. The primary theme of these parables is repentance. If you look in verse 7, in Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now that word for repents, and this is important, in these verses, it's the word metaneo, metaneo, and it means to change one's mind for the better. So that word for repent in the Greek means to change one's mind for the better, and that probably sounds familiar to many of you, because how have you heard repentance described to you before as what? Changing your mind. That is correct. It is synonymous with coming to our senses. It is synonymous with coming to yourself, which is how it's translated in some Bibles, such as the NIV and NES, or in other words, in the ESV it says, he came to himself, but in other Bibles it says he came to his senses. I believe the NIV and NASB. And this is also how repentance is described elsewhere in Scripture as coming to our senses. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may what? Come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. What does it mean to come to your senses? It means exactly what Luke 15.17 says, when he came to himself. And isn't this how we talk about people who are backslidden or ensnared in sin? What do we say about them? When are they going to come to their senses? Now, let's connect the dots and go back to the beginning of the sermon. When it says the prodigal son came to himself, or when it says the prodigal son came to his senses, it means he recognized that he was not experiencing a trial. It means he recognized he was experiencing discipline because of his sin. And that was an incredible revelation for him to have because what could he have thought? Oh, I am so unlucky. I cannot believe this right after I spent my last cent. Super unfortunately, there's this famine in the land. That's not what he thought. What he thought was, I have been sinning and God is disciplining me. He came to his senses. He woke up to that reality. And he said, I am suffering and it is my fault. 
I am the one who has brought this into my life. I am the cause of this. I cannot blame anyone else. This is not random. It is not chance. I am not unfortunate. I am being disciplined because of my sin. Because just think for a minute, what did, he, what did he not have to wake up to or come to his senses about? And what did he have to wake up to or come to his senses about? He didn't have to wake up to the fact that he was suffering. He, he didn't have to be alerted or come to the realization that he was suffering. He knew he was suffering. He had to come to the realization of why he was suffering, why this suffering was taking place in his life. And he knew that it was not because he was unlucky. He knew that it was because he was a sinful person who needed to repent. Now, for us, coming to our senses means recognizing that we're not unlucky. This is not chance or random or happenstance in our lives. It is nobody else's fault. Instead, it is our fault. It is because we sinned. And I also want to point out that the son, he had to hit rock bottom before coming to himself. We talked about this in a recent sermon on this parable, that it would have been very detrimental to the son if anyone would have given him anything. It was good for him to reach that very low point where he could do nothing but look up. But he had to reach rock bottom. There had to be no other rung on the ladder that he could step down to before he was finally able to think clearly. And so one of the really beautiful realities of this parable that I've been reflecting on is that he wasn't really himself when he was in sin. It was when he woke up to the reality of what he was suffering and wanted to repent of it, when he started thinking clearly that he came to himself. He had to be feeding the pigs. He had to be longing to eat the same food that they ate before coming to his senses. And what's the application for us? Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom. Sometimes we have to be proverbially feeding the pigs and longing for what they're eating before we come to our senses. Now, let me close with this. Until we repent, based on what we just read, we are not thinking logically. Consider this. When people are in unrepentant sin, according to this parable, they are thinking illogically and foolishly. They are not themselves. And so when you're ever talking to people who are in habitual unrepentant sin, remember that they are not being themselves. They are not thinking logically. They are, not, they are, they are acting foolishly. They are acting irrationally. But when we repent, that's when we are thinking logically. That's when we are thinking clearly. That's when we have come to our senses. And then the wonderful encouragement I can give you, which we'll get into more in the next sermon, is that when we do come to our senses, we do come to ourselves and repent, what do we have waiting for us? A loving heavenly Father that is standing on that hill, looking out for us, waiting for us to come home to him. So have that in your mind. We'll talk more about it next week. Then when we finally come to our senses, we have a loving Heavenly Father that has been waiting for us to wake up to the reality of our suffering and turn back to Him. Father, we thank You for this parable. I thank You for the way You work in our lives and that You introduce 
trials for our good, and you also introduce discipline for our good. I pray that the trials in our lives would produce maturity, and I pray that the discipline in our lives would produce repentance, and I also pray that we would have the wisdom to know the difference between the two, Lord. And I pray that when we experience trials, we wouldn't think it's a discipline, and when we experience discipline, we wouldn't think it was trials, Lord. Uh, I, it is encouraging to me, your, your sovereign hand in our lives, that there are no there's no coincidences. It is always your providence working for us through the circumstances we experience. That is very encouraging to me, Lord, and I pray the same uh, for your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.